Today, you may think of a goth as a person who wears black, probably has a lot of piercings, and listens to heavy metal and punk music. But before goth was a fashion statement, it was a tribe of fierce warriors that lived in the dawn of the common era. In fact, they were the only known people to defeat the Roman Empire in battle and had a large part in the play of their downfall. But if you like it, then go ahead and strap those chains and put on some makeup as we dig deeper into the goth culture of ancient times. I'm Scott Parrish, and you're listening to Dying to Eat, the podcast that delves into different cultures of the world throughout time while exploring the different attitudes about food and death. If you love history, good eating, and fascinating stories, and I have a great show in store for you, so make sure you stick around to the end to see what's cooking this week. Also, I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, TheTailoredHemp.com. According to Joy Organics, did you know, however, that CBD is just one of over 100 cannabinoids contained within cannabis? THC is well known around the world, but there are many, many more cannabinoids that exist. Exact numbers are hard to pinpoint, but research indicates that there are quite a few. Some of the major cannabinoids, aside from CBD and THC, include CBDG, CBC, CBC, THCV, CBDV, CBCV, and CBGV. Jeez, I gotta get a drink of water just after all that. All of which are believed to contain their own unique beneficial properties. Want to learn more? Reach out to thetailoredhemp.com. Now, on with the show. We've all done this thought experiment before. If you were to put two ancient warriors in a ring to fight against each other, who would win? In fact, I think it was a really good TV show. I can't recall the name of it. But let's think. Gladiators versus samurai. Pirates against Huns. It's fun to think about. I believe that after today's episode, you'll agree with me when I say that the Goths are not a people to be messed with. These guys were some serious warriors. Like I said before, they led to the downfall of one of the biggest empires in history, almost single-handedly. But we'll get to that later. The Goths were a nomadic tribe of warriors that moved around the outside of the border of the Roman Empire. Keep in mind that at this time, around 300 CE, the Roman Empire was one of the largest, encompassing the entire Mediterranean, Iberian Peninsula, and the western shores of the Black Sea. It's so large that the state has been divided into politically aligned but autonomous halves, one based in Rome and the other based in Constantinople. There were about 7 million people in the Roman Empire, all living in prosperity and peace. All roads lead to Rome, they would say. Those who resided outside the empire often lived off their scraps and were regarded as barbarians and heathens who lived in uncivilized tribes. It had been this way for a long time, as far as anyone could remember. But that wasn't the case with the Goths. They were warriors, yes, but they were also farmers who cultivated flax, barley, rye, and wheat wherever they went. Their society was built up with artisans who made jewelry out of gold and encrusted gemstones. Does this sound like a tribe of barbarians? No, it doesn't to me. So, where did that notion come from? To answer that, we have to look at the Gothic origins. Now that I think about it, Gothic Origins would be a great name for a band. Pete, remind me to look that up later. Now, there is no scholarly consensus to where the Goths came from. Pete, 
Pete. <laughs> You're on my mind, brother. Ancient Roman legends say that the Goths came down from Scandinavia sharing roots with the Vikings. But there's no historical evidence to back this up. So what do historians say? Well, there's two schools of thought here. One school believes that the Goths became the identity that coalesced over centuries, a product that combined and mixed cultures of smaller, older Germanic tribes coming together. This makes sense, as the Romans would use the word Goth as a basic label for non-Romans. So the Goths, before establishing themselves as a tribal entity, were actually a collective name for a group of cultures that we know the individual names today. This would include the Vandals, the Gauls, the Moors, and the Franks, just to name a few. The other school believes that the Goths are a product of Roman culture influence. This also makes sense, as even in Roman military Goths or barbarians would fight, they would be constricted and forced to fight within the legions. So perhaps Goth is just the name of these warriors embraced as a means of sticking it to the Romans. Whenever they came Wherever they came from, the Goths didn't actually appear in historical records until around the early 3rd century. Though there are records from ancient Roman historians such as Pliny the Elder, Tacitus, and Jordanes of a group of people who may have been the Goths. The people are described as tall, fair-skinned, with blonde hair and light eyes who settled on the northern shore of the Black Sea. They carried round shields and short swords and were noted for being very muscular. They kind of sounded like Vikings in my mind. But we know for a fact that Romans and Vikings never fought each other. Another matchup of that thought experiment I talked about earlier, the first incursion of the Roman Empire that can be attributed to Goths is the sack of Hysteria in, two, in 238. The first reference to the Goths in the 3rd century called them Scythians in this area known for the Scythia and located on the Dubonnet west of the Black Sea, had historically been occupied by an unrelated people of that name. It was the late 3rd century that the name Goths was first mentioned. They excelled at horsemanship, archery, and falconry, and were also accomplished agriculturists and seafarers. It's pretty well rounded out. From the 240s at the earliest, Goths were heavily recruited into the Roman army to fight in the Roman-Persian Wars. Man, that's a great episode we need to note right there. Incredible. Notably, they participated at the Battle of Masiki in 244. The Romans lost that battle, though they would never admit it. Meanwhile, Gothic raids on the Roman Empire continued. In 250 or 251, the Gothic king Seneva captured the city of Philonopolis. <laughs> Let me diverge for a second. I love how they name their cities. Philonopolis. Way to go, Phil. So, the Gothic king, Seneva, captured the city, Philonopolis, and inflicted a devastating defeat on the Romans at the Battle of Abritus, in which the Roman emperor, Decius, was killed. This was one of the most disastrous defeats in the history of the Roman army. The first Gothic seaborne raids took place in the 250s, leading to the first incursions into Asia Minor. One by one, the Goths attacked and sacked city after city through the region that we now today know as Turkey. The Goths didn't just attack the Romans, though. Greek cities like Athens, Corinth, Argos, Olympia, and Sparta also fell to the Goths. No one was safe. 
by the end of the raids, the Goths had seized control over Crimea and uh, Bosporus, a city that would later become Hirsch, and had captured several cities on the Black Sea coast, including Abia and Taurus, which enabled them to engage in widespread naval activities. From there, the story of the Goths remains about the same. They sailed the seas, they sacked every city they came across, and fighting the armies of the more, let's call them uh, civilized nations, I guess. I want to dis dissuade the idea that the Goths were an all-powerful force that never lost. It couldn't be stopped, though. The Romans were victorious in a few key battles against the Goths, despite the Roman Civil War that was beginning at the end of the 3rd century. For instance, when the Goths first tried to invade Italy, they were engaged by the Roman Emperor Claudius II and his Roman army in Nassius. Large numbers on both sides were killed, but at a critical point, the Romans tricked the Goths into an ambush by pretending to retreat. Some 50,000 Goths were allegedly killed or taken captive at their base at Thessaloniki. <laughs> okay, guys, hang on with me here. Thessaloniki. Some survivors were resettled within the empire, while others were incorporated into the Roman army. The battle ensured the survival of the Roman Empire for another two centuries. By the third, late late part of the 3rd century, there were at least two groups of Goths, separated by the east and the west sides of the Dniester uh, River and Therimbingi and Gruthung. Both the Gruthung and Therimbingi became heavily Romanized during the 4th century. This came about through trade with the Romans, as well as through Gothic membership of the military covenant which was based in Byzantine at that time and involved pledges of military assistance. Kind of a old world NATO, I guess. So reportedly 40,000 Goths were brought by Constantine to defend Constantinople in his later reign and the palace guard was thereafter mostly composed of Germanic warriors as Roman soldiers by this time had largely lost military value. The Goths increased they increasingly became soldiers in the Roman armies in the 4th century, leading to the significant Germanization of the Roman army. Without the recruitment of Germanic warriors in the Roman army, the Roman Empire would not have survived as long as it did. You know, it, it's funny how the Goths were both destroying the Roman Empire and keeping it alive at the same time. As much as Rome had influenced Goth culture, they also had some influence over the Romans as well. For instance, the Gothic penchant for wearing skins became fashionable in Constantinople, a fashion which was loudly denounced by the conservatives. Even 1,600 years ago, Goths were still rebelling against the status quo. Over the next centuries, both groups of Goths would continue to fight many battles with different nations in the world. While the Romans remained their largest combatant, there were still the Goths conscripted into their armies that helped the empire remain strong. Many of these battles fought were indecisive and often ended in peace treaties. It was also around this time that the Goths were beginning to convert to uh, Arianism, a Presbyterian form of Christianity, and abandoned the old ways of Germanic paganism. 
the Cots were starting to assimilate into cultures that uh, of their own, and the Gothic identity was quickly changing into something more. I want to dissuade the idea that the Goths were an all-powerful force that could never lose and couldn't be stopped. The Romans were victorious in a few key battles against the Goths, despite the Roman Civil War that was also beginning at the end of the 3rd century. For instance, when the Goths first tried to invade Italy, they were engaged by the Roman Emperor Claudius II and his Roman army at Nassius. Large numbers on both sides were killed, but at the critical point, the Romans tricked the Goths into an ambush by pretending to retreat. Some 50,000 Goths were allegedly killed or taken captive, and their base at Thessaloniki was destroyed. Some survivors were resettled within the empire, while others were incorporated into the Roman army. The battle ensured the survival of the Roman Empire for another two centuries. By the late 3rd century, there were at least two groups of Goths, separated by the east and west sides of the the Nestor River, the Therengvinji, and the Gruthong. Both the Gruthong and the Therengvinji became heavily Romanized in the 4th century. This came about through trade with the Romans, as well as through Gothic membership of a military covenant which had been based in Byzantine and involved pledges of military assistance. I, I guess I would call that the NATO of the Old World. Reportedly, 40,000 Goths were brought by Constantine to defend Constantinople in his later reign, and the palace guard was therefore mostly composed of Germanic warriors, as Roman soldiers by the time had largely lost military value. The Goths increasingly became soldiers in the Roman armies in the 4th century, leading to a significant Germanization of the Roman army. Without the recruitment of Germanic soldiers in the Roman army, the Roman Empire just plain would not have survived as long as it did. It's funny how the Goths were both destroying the Roman Empire and keeping it alive at the same time. As much as Rome had influenced Gothic culture, they also had some influence over the Romans as well. For instance, the Gothic penchant for wearing skins became fashionable in Constantinople, a fashion which was loudly denounced by conservatives. So, side note for you guys, Conservatives and liberals, they've been fighting forever. Even 1,600 years ago, Goths were still rebelling against the status quo. Over the next centuries, both groups of Goth would continue to fight many battles with different nations of the world. While the Romans remained their largest combatant, there were still the Goths conscripted into their armies that helped the empire remain strong. Many of these battles fought were indecisive and often ended in peace treaties. It was also around this time that the Goths were beginning to convert to Arianism. It's, that's a Presbyterian form of Christianity, and abandoned the old ways of Germanic paganism. The Goths were starting to assimilate into other cultures, and the Gothic identity was quickly changing into something completely different. It wasn't until the threat of another giant and great army began to threaten their borders that the Goth story really took a drastic turn. Around 375, the Huns overran the Alans. The Alans are an Iranian people living on the east side of the Goths, and then along with the Alans, invaded the territory of the Goths themselves. The Rithanji uh, gradually fell under the 
Hunnic domination, and they quickly turned their sights onto the Derevingi, although the Huns successfully subdued many of the Goths, who subsequently joined the ranks. And there was a small group of Goths who appealed to the Eastern Roman Emperor for help, asking for safe passage to cross the river and settle on the southern shore. Rome agreed to this, and if you're wondering why the Goths' greatest adversary would offer them sanctuary, then you really just haven't been paying attention. So hey, wake up. The Romans ended up disarming the Goths that had fled to the Dubonnet, and this portion of the Goths would go on to endure mistreatment, famine, and corruption. However, the Romans had more or less saved the Goths from being wiped out by the Huns. We all know that the Hunnic invasion never got past the Roman Empire, but this small group of Goths were safe within their borders. With the Romans holding the Huns at bay, the Goths, along with the, along the Dubonnet, started to rebel against the treachery of the Romans, initiating what was known as the Gothic Wars in 376 CE. This conflict would last for several years, culminating in the Battle of Adrianople in 378, in which the Romans were badly defeated and the Eastern Roman Empire Valens were killed. Following the decisive Gothic victory at Adrianople, Julius, the Magister Matilum of the Eastern Roman Empire, man, that's a cool title, isn't it? He organized a wholesale massacre of Goths in Asia Minor, Syria, and other parts of the Roman East. Fearing rebellion, Julius lured the Goths into the confines of the urban streets from which they could not escape and massacred the soldiers and civilians alike. As word spread, the Goths rioted throughout the region and large numbers were killed. The Romans had no choice but to conclude this conflict in another peace treaty in 382. But let's not forget about the Goths outside of those borders. In the aftermath of the Hunnic onslaughter, two major groups of Goths would eventually emerge. And these are probably names that you're more familiar with because we're getting into uh, history that, that is more commonly taught. These groups were the Visigoths and the Ostrogoths. The Visigoths means the good or noble Goths, while the Ostrogoths means Goths of the Rising Sun or the East Goths. The Visigoths, led by, Balti, by the Balti dynasty, claimed descent from the Theravingi and lived as foreign citizens inside the Roman territory while the Ostrogoths, led by Amelie, the Amelie dynasty, claimed descent from Grithangi and were subjects to the Huns. Following the death of Attila and the defeat of the Huns at the Battle of Nadal in 454, the Ostrogoths broke away from Hunnic rule under their king Vladimir. They settled in Italy and, unfortunately, were eventually integrated into the Lombards, another Germanic tribe, and after years of increased conflict with the Roman during the Gothic Wars that greatly depleted their population. Even though the Ostrogoth faded away, the Visigoths were a new Gothic political unit brought together during the career of their first leader, Alaric I. Alaric himself was actually a soldier in the Roman army, serving under Theodosius I. In 395, following the death of Theodosius I, Alaric and his Visigoths invaded Greece, where they sacked Praeus, 
a port in Athens, and destroyed Corinth, Megara, Argos, and Sparta. Athens itself was spared by paying a large bribe. The Visigoths, while they were technically Roman warriors, still clung to their own identities and were desperate to settle their own land and build their own kingdoms. However, by this period, the Roman Empire was perilously weak, especially with its eastern half already inheriting many of the rich territories and separate royal court at Constantinople, the largest city of Europe at that time. The Western Roman Empire, in contrast, had its political structure eroding by a variety of factors, including external threats and internal incompetence, thereby leaking even more autonomous powers to the allied Germanic tribes like the Goths. It wouldn't be until the early 5th century that the Visigoths established an independent Visigothic kingdom on the Iberian Peninsula. That is, and we've talked about this in, in other episodes. When I say Iberian Peninsula, I'm talking about where Spain and Portugal meet today, as well as a small portion of southern France and Germany. They established a strong foothold. Although they controlled Spain, they still formed a tiny minority among the much larger Hispano-Rome population, approximately 200,000 out of 6 million. In France and Germany, they lived in a state of threatened conflict with two other Germanic tribes, the Franks and the Gauls. Now, at this point, I'm not going to delve much further into the rest of the story with the Visigoths. If you want to hear the rest of their tale, check out our episode on Spain, because we definitely take a deeper dive there. The long and short of it is that the Visigoths ruled the Iberian Peninsula until the 8th century, though their kingdom was slowly chipped away by the Franks and the Gauls. Then they were finally overcome by the Islamic armies invading them from North Africa. But I don't want to use up all of my time with you today talking about things that I've already talked about before. In fact, there's another talk topic that I want to discuss to answer the question I'm sure that we've all been thinking. Is there any connection between the Gothic tribe of the past and the Goths of today? You might be surprised to learn that actually there is. It's a very small connection, but believe me, it's there. I've already hinted at one connection between the two Goths, how they were most known for going against the status quo. But the use of the word Goth as a way to describe things that are out of the ordinary started a long, long time ago. In the Middle Ages, Gothic became a term describing a kind of architecture, characteristics of which included arches, rib vaults, and flying buttresses. Oh yeah, and my favorite part, the gargoyles. Lots and lots of gargoyles. Gothic architecture is probably a word you've heard thrown around, but you, if you've ever been to or you've studied Europe, uh, it'll stand out even more because Gothic influence is everywhere. This type of architecture is derogatorily called Gothic by Renaissance writers because it was supposedly connected with the Germanic tribes, like the Goths. And Renaissance writers perceived the Middle Ages as times of darkness and ignorance. Remember, when all of this stuff that we talked about the Goths and fighting earlier, that was all uh, at the beginning of what European historians term the Dark Ages. The association with Gothic quickly became known with barbarism. 
This actually doesn't make a lot of sense because Gothic architecture was primarily used for churches and cathedrals. Some of the most impressive Gothic cathedrals can be found in Germany. Namely, I'd like you to look at the Cologne Cathedral. There is also no evidence that Gothic architecture was in any way connected to Germanic tribes, but labels like that hardly ever stick because they are accurate. In the 18th and 19th centuries, the word Gothic was again used to describe a genre of literature, Gothic fiction, which combined elements of romanticism with horror and terror. The term comes from the first novel of its kind, The Castle of Otranto by Horace Warpole, which was subtitled A Gothic Story. Other famous examples include Bram Stoker's Dracula, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, and everything by Edgar Allan Poe. Apparently, this genre of literature was described as Gothic because it often took place in old buildings with Gothic architecture. Now, the word has become associated with all of the dark, spooky, horrific things in novels, stories, and poems themselves. So we've moved from barbaric Germanic tribes to architecture associated with them, to spooky stories taking place amid the architecture, and now we're at the Gothic rock in the 1980s. Like Gothic literature, it used dark and romantic themes. That seems to best be the connection that I can find. The things described as Gothic or Goth are connected by a series of tangents, and now the Gothic subculture encompasses all that is dark and unconventional. So that's the connection. It's a very small connection, like I said. But I like to think that the gods of ancient times might find some kinship with their emo counterparts today, seeing they both are like not sticking it to the man. Let's move on to today's recipe and get a little bit lighter. Some of you may be sad to hear this recipe doesn't involve black food, but I'm sure you could add some food coloring if you wanted to. Our recipe today is German apple cake. So four small apples. You can use just about any variety. Half a cup of unsalted butter at room temperature. That's one stick. Half a cup of granulated sugar. Two teaspoons of vanilla extract. Two, two, two teaspoons fresh lemon juice. Three large eggs. One and a half cups of cake flour. Two teaspoons of baking powder. Quarter teaspoon of salt. And two tablespoons of milk. Now, before I get into how to put these together, I do want to make the point on cake flour. That's definitely a thing that we use over here in America. Cake flour in Germany doesn't exist. Flour in Germany is American cake flour. So, preheat your oven to 350 degrees or 175 Celsius and grease the bottom of an iron skillet. <laughs> you can do it in a pan if you want. I just love iron skillets. Peel, quarter, and core the apples. Then thinly slice each quarter lengthwise without cutting it all the way through. This, is, this method is actually called Hasselback. Then with a hand mixer, beat the butter until creamy for about a minute or so. Add your sugar and mix it until light and fluffy. That's another couple of minutes. Then add the eggs one at a time and beat for 30 seconds on high speed after each addition. Add the vanilla and lemon juice. 
and beat until well combined. Combine the cake flour, baking powder, and salt in a separate bowl. With the mixer running on low, add about half the flour, then a tablespoon of milk, followed by the remaining flour, then add the remaining milk. Beat until well mixed. Now, remember this, don't overmix. You don't want to overbeat your batter. <laughs> that sounds horrible. I apologize. Distribute the apples with the sliced side up on top. Pour the batter around the apples. Now, bake on the lower rack of the oven for 45 minutes or until lightly browned and the skewer comes out clean. Let the cake cool completely, sprinkled with powdered sugar over the cooled cake, and serve with either vanilla ice cream or coffee. I've been your host, Scott Parrish, and I'd like to thank you for listening to Dying to Eat. And I'd really like to thank Pete for putting up with me because I just can't quit laughing sometimes. I really hope you enjoyed this episode as we took a closer look at the frantic and shocking history of the gods. This show is really made possible by listeners like you. I'd like to give a special shout out to Rab665, SDD433, Weird Static, and Lucas Egan. I would like to point out to Tomenia234, thank you for calling our podcast wonderful, and I'm glad you think you've been listening to us for years. Unfortunately, unfortunately, we haven't been on the air that long, and I'm just guessing it just seems that way. So, your support drives the show, and we enjoy hearing from you. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Dying to Eat Podcast. Let us know what topics you'd like to hear. Find future and past episodes on your favorite podcast platform. Make sure to drop us a like, and don't forget to hit that subscription button and give us a five-star rating as you stay up to date on latest episodes. Until next time, stay like.